So welcome back to the third and final episode of KCL Diverse Lawyers podcast on LGBTQ plus developments in the legal sphere. I am Stella Miettinen and I'm here with my co-host Corliss Say. Today we have with us James Matthews and Jonathan Toffolo from Sherman and Sterling's London office. Thank you both for taking the time to join us today. Would you like to briefly introduce yourselves to our listeners? Sure. So um, my name is Jonathan Toffolo. I'm a senior associate in the project development and finance team in Sherman Sterling's London office. I'm James Matthews. I'm an associate in the litigation group at Sherman and Sterling's London office. Thank you for your introductions. So I'm sure our, int- our listeners are excited to learn more about diversity uh, and inclusion at Sherman and Sterling, as well as the both of you. So diving into our first question, as Sherman and Sterling are part of the top 25 law firms with the most LGBTQ plus lawyers in 2020, in what ways, if any, do you think this, has in- this increased representation has changed your experience at the firm? Yeah, I-, I can answer that. I think it's a difficult one because if you haven't seen the firm sort of before it was in this list, then you, I guess you can't necessarily uh, compare it. But I know because I, mean, I joined the firm about two years ago from a from a different firm, and I noticed very quickly that it was just not you know it's just not an issue. Um, I remember quite specifically speaking to one of the partners on my my first day and he he asked me you know oh do you have another half I mean first of all not saying do you have a girlfriend do you have another half and I said yes I I have a boyfriend and usually when you say that there's like a slight pause when the person is like recalibrating their brain and you can see them sort of thinking about it but with him there was just no pause it was like oh cool what does he do and then I I was the one who was pausing going okay this is weird usually there's a bit more of a confusion but um so that that to to me is a bit of a strange example but it's an example of how sort of embedded it is um and you really can see that I mean I've never I made a sort of active choice not that I wasn't out at my previous firm but I think as LGBT people you always have to have that question with yourself do I go in sort of out or do I test the water first and then decide on how out I want to be um, but for me I mean getting to Sherman Sterling it was pretty clear very early on that I didn't have anything to worry about so that was great. It's definitely wonderful to hear that the sort of casual acceptance seems embedded in the firm's culture and that queer relationships are actually normalised. More specifically, as queer lawyers yourselves, as well as the chairs of Sterling Pride, the inclusion network which aims to foster LGBTQ plus leadership in the workplace, what are some initiatives you believe are particularly important or have been particularly successful in developing this form of leadership in the firm? I think there's a a number of things. I mean, training is very important. And by that, I mean... Uh, having sessions where you get external speakers or you get people within the firm to sort of talk about particular issues. Um, I I joined a talk uh, recently about discussing LGBT issues with children, which is something I'd never really thought about. Um, But it was really interesting some of the ways they were talking about how to have those conversations with children and why it doesn't need to be a scary conversation. Um, and how you can have sort of age-appropriate conversations, which is really interesting. We've also had lots of things on unconscious bias, which is more general, I guess. So it's not only LGBT, but also race and ethnicity, disability, neurodiversity, gender, and so on. Um, And uh, we also had Global Butterflies come in to talk about trans inclusion, and they're a fantastic organisation. I've heard them speak many times, um, and they do really 
great training uh, on on issues that trans people might have in the workplace they also do training specifically for hr departments which our hr department has done and also for front of house staff so people who work on like reception desk and might interact with clients just knowing how how to interact with people say over the phone or in person um to not use sort of gendered words and so on um so those are some of the things which i think are quite quite essential really on a separate note there's also our allyship program which in london we're very lucky we have a bit of a rivalry going with new york to see who can get the most allies on board um but we have uh, you know a huge number of allies registered in london um and we sort of give them all ally cards with some top 10 tips on how to be an ally and there's sort of also training that they can attend um so you know i think that's quite important also having regular as i say regular meetings regular updates on what the sterling pride are actually, have actually been up to um is really important and just generally making sure that the lgbt lawyers in the various groups get get exposure generally not just for being part of sterling pride but maybe delivering training on their specific practice area or delivering an update on a particular legal development just so they're you know getting exposure more generally within the firm as, as well yeah that's really promising i think your some answer kind of summarizes the importance of you know bringing all the threads together of different backgrounds um you know on board for maximum inclusion and you know given that the lgbtq plus umbrella itself covers such a wide range of converging but also disparate sexualities and gender identities how do you create cohesive representation in leadership for this community it's a great question and one that i'm very passionate about because um it's a, i think it's something that most organizations struggle with in that LGBTQ generally ends up meaning G and, you know, white, cis, um, gay men, essentially. And you go to a lot of these LGBT events and you're like, where are the women? Where are the people from ethnic minorities? Um, where are people with disabilities? Um, so it's really, it's been a real focus for us over the past couple of years to make sure that each of our inclusion networks and diversity networks are themselves inclusive so it's all well and good talking about the firm being inclusive but actually making sure that they are welcoming environments for everyone within the lgbt community um and in particular i've been very very um passionate about getting more women involved for instance and not just having fee earners involved that's something that law firms often struggle with is a lot of these diversity inclusion networks focus on fee earners i.e the lawyers and don't you know, bring in people from the business services side or other non-fee earners. Um, so no, it's a, it's definitely a work in progress for the for the industry generally. Um, but it's it's certainly something that I and when I speak to friends who work in different industries, it's something that we are live to um, in making sure that it's not just you know white gay men who are deciding everything. Uh, you know, for example, organizing events. You know not everyone necessarily wants to go to a specific kind of place. Um, so making sure that that decision making is diverse is really important. And moving into inclusion through the wider commercial world, what do you think businesses can do to push acceptance forward? You know, for example, Amazon has recently come forward saying they won't be selling books portraying LGBT issues as mental illnesses. Yeah, I can take uh, this one. I mean, I think it's 
a really important point um and it's obviously something we're we're live to as sort of a member of the wider corporate world um i think i think being on the cutting edge of sort of progressing you know pushing progressiveness and an acceptance forward is is important because i think we're well placed to and companies in general such as amazon are well placed to in their sort of they're sort of inherently secular um, and they're sort of their own societies in, in a way where you can sort of have a, a fresh start and a fresh sort of take on things. Um, so I think there's absolutely some sort of moral obligation that these companies have. And I think many companies, certainly in the field we work in, in professional services, most companies that I'm aware of, sort of do accept the moral obligation they have to sort of be seen as something of a beacon and, and try and push things forward in a very visible way. Um, and, and just sort of thinking specifically, uh, it's interesting you mentioned Amazon. That's obviously a great thing that they've done. It's just sort of one isolated example. I, I'd sort of look at some of the other bigger technology companies out there, such as Apple and Facebook, um, and, and they're really the companies that are controlling the technology, and the IA, and, and the mediums that the media itself is operating in, and, and that we, um, social media users, are operating in. Um, so there's a real question there, I think, in terms of what those companies to do and what specific responsibility they take on um, sort of over the years ahead in terms of in terms of what they're going to do to ensure that their their sort of their marketplaces, that the social media, the medium itself is is sort of as inclusive as it can be. Um, it's you, you know it's quite a big question and I'm sure it's something that people are going to be talking about and looking into more in, in the years ahead. Just to add, um, the, the, the important, it's the importance of representation. It's about, and it's also something that you hear a lot about in the sort of race and ethnicity space um, and with Black Lives Matter as well. Um, but even something simple like putting a gay couple in your advert you know, it's it's it used to be something you know super shocking and groundbreaking, and and now it's just it's something that's just really nice to see. And I think people who might be against something, often it's be, it's through ignorance and not having been exposed to it or or, or knowing much about it or knowing anyone who is um, is out, for instance. And I think constantly sort of presenting LGBT relationships or LGBT people as just any like any other person is a really quite easy frankly and positive thing that businesses can do uh, to help sort of push acceptance forward as people become more and more sort of used to seeing it I think their their sort of objections will, will start to disappear. Jonathan was sort of alluding to you know just on tv you see gay people in adverts more now where you never did before and you know, for example, in, in the music industry, I think more people, more LGBT people, are out than ever before. So, for example, if you go onto Apple Music and see a picture of a known LGBT singer, um, that, that's the sort of thing that actually makes a huge difference. And you'd hope that these social media companies, and companies in general, and things they can do, will be sort of you know looking for opportunities to feature and have that positive reinforcement and, and really, as Jonathan said, sort of enhanced representation. Mm. I think it's about um, having those personal connections that you can see um, outwards in the media, you know, and socially as people become more educated and accepting, 
how do you continue to progress the movement beyond media representation when you come up against resistance or people who have previously been resistant to accepting members of the community? I, th I think, you know, education needs to be universal and it's kind of bringing everyone along, not just a minority or even the majority. It's kind of, it's kind of bringing ev everyone along, along really. So it's really kind of changing the, you know, changing the shape of our society and changing the structures rather than, rather than sort of seeing pockets of people. It's kind of, kind of, you know, I think it's sort of aiming as high as we can and just trying to change the whole shape of society for the better. So so that the sort of the islands of, of sort of resistance really are just sort of washed away in the tide eventually. I think I think that would be that, that would sort of be the end game. And and that sort of links back to what we were just talking about, I think, in terms of sort of changing society in general and, and the companies and sort of what they can do to lead the charge and 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 really just sort of push from the front. I think as well on this, this kind of demonstrates as well the importance of allies because if there's, and, and again to draw a comparison with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, one of the the challenges with, with that was the fact that, you know, suddenly you know, white people wanted to learn, um, and I use that term very generally, um, but black people had been trying to talk about this for so long and it's exhausting to have to constantly fight to get people to understand and fight for people's attention and fight for people to actually want to listen and I think that's why allies are so important because they can take up and shoulder some of that responsibility when it has just got too exhausting for you know LGBT people to have to have that conversation again an ally can step in and fine you know allies might not be 100% au fait with all of the, the correct language and the correct terminology and whatever else but it's about have, showing up and showing that support and and yeah as I say shouldering some of the burden of having to explain these things uh, constantly because it, do, it does get tiring especially if you're trying to do it in a very calm and measured way which I think you have to um, I, don't, I don't know that shouting at people and uh, you know calling them bigots is necessarily the best way to changing minds unfortunately um much as people might want to do that so yeah having that sort of calm approach can be even more exhausting um so allies are really important there i think um allyship definitely plays a key role in the progression of the social movements that you know we've touched on and that um the discourse surrounding the fact that people of color are not in fact obligated to explain the oppression actually translates very well into LGBTQ plus issues. Touching on the firm itself, Sherman and Sterling have in the past shown a fierce dedication to LGBTQ plus inclusion through their pro bono work with the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund's Name Change Project. What are some current pro bono initiatives relevant to the community you feel are especially worthwhile? Yeah, so there's, going back to what I was saying earlier about the importance of making the networks themselves inclusive. One of the um, pro bono initiatives that we've been doing, well, although I guess it's more CSR, but let's not split hairs, um, is writing uh, Christmas cards to LGBT people who don't have, don't spend Christmas with their families because of the fact that they're LGBT essentially. Um, and in, in New York, there's a similar uh, program that happens with LGBT, I think it's with vet, no, it's with, uh, 
older LGBT people who might not have family. Um, and it's just quite sim simple. You just write a Christmas card to someone. You get a sort of a sheet with some information about them that you can sort of feed into the, the, the card writing. Um, and it's something as well that obviously anyone can get involved with. You don't need to be a lawyer to write a Christmas card. And I'm, I mean, I'm sure people don't really want to receive a Christmas card from a lawyer either, but um, probably quite boring. But um, but yeah, it was just a really nice way of doing something for the community that that also was inclusive in and of itself because it meant anyone in the firm could do it. Some of the other activities we've been doing, we do a lot of uh, research because obviously lawyers are good at research supposedly. So um, we did a project for an organisation called Outright Action International, um, and what they were looking at was a whole list of different countries around the world and essentially going through cases that related to LGBT issues and what they eventually did and it's on their website would recommend having a look um, it's they put together a report essentially setting out legal arguments that you might want to use if you're bringing a case in your in your jurisdiction um, so it uses sort of United Nations uh, resolutions and concepts like the Yogyakarta principles um, that, that people have successfully used in a number of jurisdictions to win cases um, uh, to get sort of equal equal rights so that was a really rewarding um, a really re rewarding task we also did a another research task for the Chinese uh, initiative on international law because um, the big push in China to get to get equal marriage um, which unfortunately I don't think is on the cards anytime soon but I think um, other protections perhaps civil civil partnerships may well be soon um, and that again was looking at how human rights law leads to uh, or can help on the pathway to to equal marriage I guess the the main principle, and sorry, geeking out now a little bit, but I guess some lawyers will be listening. Um, essentially, you know, human rights laws generally around the world are pretty much drafted in the same way. The whole point of these research tasks is basically to say, well, if that's if you're using the same wording to draft your laws as they do in Europe or in America, then surely you should be interpreting them in a similar kind of way. Um, so goes the argument. Um, so yeah, those those are a couple of, of things we've done recently, uh, which I think have been really, really great. It sounds like there definitely is a range of diverse yet equally meaningful initiatives at the firm, which is really cool because diverse lawyers have actually also participated in the Rainbow Cards project that you brought up. So we definitely also see the importance of schemes which have a small but incrementally impactful effect. In terms of scope for employees to introduce initiatives on their own, is there any room for associates or perhaps even trainees to propose their own pro bono initiatives they might be passionate about? So the the rainbow cards, which is what the Christmas writing, Christmas card writing thing was, that actually came from one of our PAs. So, and this again goes to the point about making sure that our network is inclusive and that everyone's being heard. Um, anyone can propose any anything. You know, I actually brought in a pro bono client recently um called black thrive uh to help them set up as a charity and you know as long as you know we have to obviously run the conflicts checks and so on and you know make sure we we can get all the the details you need for aml purposes but yeah there's absolutely scope for anyone in the organization not just associates and trainees but anyone to, to sort of propose something like this 
think and there's also scope for for people to go out and and attend you know in sort of the wider wider legal market and you know and attend presentations and seminars and sort of get involved and make connections that way um for example from doing that i've done some work with the human dignity trust um who you might have come across they're quite important um as a charity in terms of trying to get the decriminalization laws well in, in all the many jurisdictions <laughs> where they exist um overturned which sort of links into the, some of the specific projects jonathan was talking about earlier so but there's definitely the lgbt lawyers at shim and there's definitely a lot of ways to sort of get involved sort of within the firm and, and sort of connecting the firm to these sorts of things as well sort of through through you so i think it's um admirable how you tie both you know ensuring that for example with you mentioning about the deconstruction of legal jargon being incredibly important for better representation, especially for you know disadvantaged individuals who may lack means to get counsel, but also with internally in the firm to ensure that there's representation, I think is quite quite touching. Getting a bit more personal though, uh, we were wondering if you could share your experiences with coming out and how that impacted your career or life as a student, if at all. I, to be honest, I don't really remember ever being in. <laughs> so I don't, like when I, eventually confirmed things to my parents I called it my confirmation rather than my coming out because <laughs> there was nothing to really talk about um now I appreciate that puts me in a category of very fortunate people within the LGBT community um where I don't think it's held me back and you know anyone looking at me can probably say well you know you're also a white man so you've not had to deal with 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 all the the intersections that can go with that but no i mean from my perspective i haven't it hasn't really made much of a difference to my life yeah i mean i guess my experience was slightly different in that i guess sort of like jonathan says sometimes people sort of assume um, or just know so you don't need to um so i've sort of had that in some quarters but not in all um and 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 yeah i mean <laughs> it sometimes sometimes it can be delayed sort of with some people in some groups and and that's kind of a shame but that's kind of a fact of the coming out process and there's and that sort of you know ideally it will be at your sort of pace at a pace that you feel comfortable with so i think even though it's not ideal that we do have to come out at all and keep coming out i think you sort of need to accept the reality of that in a way and, and, you know, just recognize that it's not going to be the same sort of with, you know, with everyone or every group that you know, and that it may go on different tracks and, and take different time periods with different people. Um, so for me, as soon as I sort of accepted that reality, and part of it is reality based on sort of how I am and how I deal with things, obviously, um, it's not just about sort of everyone else. But as soon as I sort of accepted that, I felt it a slightly less draining process, um, although, albeit it is still, you know, as, as it is for everyone um so, so that's sort of my my experience which you know it definitely impacted my life as a student and it's, it's sort of ongoing in, in many ways as you know queer, <laughs> it's encouraging to hear positive experience as you know, james you're touching on um uh, jonathan you're touching on sorry and and james going you know further into a kind of the consequences of having to come out and I, it's interesting how coming out it seems like such a fundamental part of being queer but also you know it has this negative association with it that you have to come out in the first place it's definitely something that mm. you know we we find solid solidarity in
in a more global context, perhaps. As Sherman and Sterling are obviously an international firm with uh, branches in some countries that may be less LGBTQ friendly, how does the firm then work towards creating an inclusive environment for employees when their sexuality or gender identity may not be accepted in wider society? Yeah, this is a really important point. Um, and, you know, I've spoken already about the allyship program and the training sessions, and obviously those things are all open to anyone where, wherever you are in the firm. Um, but there's obviously, there may well be jurisdictions where um, LGBT people just don't have the same rights in law or where, for example, their relationship isn't recognized or for adoption purposes or surrogacy and things like that. So um, I was actually, I actually spoke to some, some of the, uh, our colleagues here and I understand the firm, obviously everyone, every colleague is different, right? And every, every person has their own individual circumstances. But one example that I was given was that um, there was someone working in one of our offices in one of these jurisdictions who was uh, a gay man with, with, a, with a male partner um, and they were adopting a child through, through a surrogate. And under local law, they wouldn't have got you know maternity leave or anything like that so the firm made sure they still got that they still got the adoption leave they still gave them those benefits they still gave them the time the time off to be with their you know the new baby so it's things like that which the firm it's a difficult one to have like a policy on because everyone's circumstance is different but i guess the messaging that the firm has to its LGBT employees is tell us what you need and we will we will support you you know wherever you are in the world um which I think is really important because it can it can feel I guess a little bit lonely if you're the only gay in the village so to speak um wherever it might be whichever village it might be in the world Moving to the queer community in general, are there any LGBTQ plus related issues in the world right now that you feel aren't being discussed enough and that we should highlight more? Yeah, I mean, I'll start because I guess I guess there are a lot. <laughs> I mean, just picking up on what what I meant when I mentioned the Human Dignity Trust earlier and the sort of criminalization of of being LGBT in, in many countries throughout the world. I think you can sort of talk about all the night, on the one hand, you can sort of talk about all the nice things, which is what, what we've been, been doing and, and how we're in these wonderful organizations where you sort of have all these structures to hold each other up and you've got each other's back. And sometimes you might feel like we're on some sort of unstoppable road to equality, but while things are sort of better than ever and are improving, that's obviously not the case. There's many, huge swathes of the world where things are stagnant, possibly moving backwards. Um, so I guess it goes back to the sort of point Jonathan said about, you know, just taking some time to remember our own privilege relative to others that can sort of look at it on, in a number of ways. One would be looking at sort of on a sort of country level, I suppose. And, you know, as, as people in, in London, in the UK, um, working somewhere like where we do, you're incredibly privileged compared to compared to you know someone in Uganda or, or, or Mozambique and it's really a completely different in terms of talking about adversity I mean it's a completely different issue and struggle there it's you know life and life and death and um, and and I suppose linking to that is sort of the the refugee issue which is sort of I think 
becoming more known and more talked about in the media, um, sort of the, the concept of having an LGBT refugee. Um, I, I mean, I, I sort of, when I'm following the news, these sort of things come pop up every now and again, but there's actually not much consistent. The, the media coverage sort of comes, comes in and out um, in terms of covering some of the things I was just talking about. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's a spotlight given and then it will sort of drift away from public, public consciousness for, you know, weeks, months or, or years. And in, in some cases, um, you know, you can compare to other similarly important and, and high profile issues such as the environment, which perhaps sort of stay around a lot more. And I think I think the LGBT refugee crisis, the, the fact that um, it is criminalised in so many countries <laughs> really must must be the sort of fundamental issues that, that aren't discussed enough and they're the sort of fundamental issues that sort of need to get fixed uh, insofar as that's possible sort of you know they need to get fixed with the most urgency and, and, and soonest and there's no easy answers there really as, as there often aren't, aren't with some of these these sorts of issues but um, but but for me I'd I'd highlight that. Um. I think I would highlight an issue that that's not necessarily not discussed not discussed enough in the UK, but is discussed far too much in a negative way, if that makes sense. Um, which is issues relating to um, gender self-identification and generally you know, trans issues. Um, I think a lot of the reporting that's done on it is based on misinformation um it's a lot of it is done without actually speaking to trans people or giving them an opportunity to discuss um and i think that's i think we need to focus a little bit more on facts um and data rather than on rumor I mean, one example might be, you know, the idea that um, people, and you know, ask anyone if they think that uh, children are being given, you know, gender reassignment surgery. I think most people, unfortunately, will think that that is happening when it just isn't. Uh, and you know, people get very confused between puberty blockers and gender reassignment surgery, um, for example. Um, so I think that's something that that people should be talking about far more responsibly, frankly. Um, but I, I sadly can't see that happening anytime soon. I think it's such a complex issue with, you know, the overlap of science and technology and also societal understandings of what it is the best way to progress with these kind of not only programs, but also uh, the definitions themselves. And I think I definitely agree with the fact that especially um, in terms of the, the legal drafting of bills and things like that, very often have um, inconsistencies in how the, the language and the definitions for gender identities are covered. So that's definitely an issue that needs to be resolved. Yeah, I mean, you see as well, you know, I saw recently, I think it's Manchester University, wanted to start using more gender neutral terms. And people were losing their minds on Twitter about the idea of saying parent or guardian instead of mother and father. And I was like, I swear that's, it's always been parent or guardian. Like when I was at school, it was always parent yeah. or guardian. I don't know why this is suddenly such a big deal. And it never used to be. It's, you know, this whole movement, if you will, 
against trans people and against the non-binary community is is very new which is shocking because you think we're all heading generally we're heading in the right direction on diversity and inclusion but this this doesn't seem like we are that's a really interesting observation as i've also personally encountered people even members of the queer community who seem resistant to the complexities of gender self-identification as well as the use of gender neutral pronouns so definitely seems like a confusing phenomenon to me as well Overall, though, I think even though there aren't any immediate solutions to many of the issues that you two touched on, it's of the utmost importance that awareness is continue to be raised and that these issues are discussed more frequently. Yeah, education is sort of half of it, really, um, to sort of so many of the things we've been talking about. And, you know, kind of allyship is sort of education in a, in a way. Um, you're sort of educating the ally who are educating their friends and it's sort of, you know, expanding expanding that um so so yeah that's that's the first step and it's it sounds like we've we've got a long way to go to get there on perhaps a more positive note uh, on a concluding statement what advice would you give to a younger version of yourself just starting university start oh god starting university again i can't imagine going that far back um i think <laughs> And on a sensible note, I would say try and do more work experience in your first, I did a four year degree, so in your first and second year, uh, and in the summer before first year, um, don't just spend your summers like doing nothing or traveling, as fun as that is, you know, it's important to actually get some work experience. It doesn't, I don't mean necessarily sitting in a law firm, um, anything, you know, retail, uh restaurant bar obviously that's difficult at the moment um it doesn't have to be you know in the city um and on a lighter note i would say try and have a have more fun even though you're living in london and broke the whole time (laughs) try and find ways to like have fun and go out a bit more yeah in terms of practical advice i'd say the the work experience one is a good one actually i found i sort of did some legal work experience early on but i'd never really had a proper job um and actually that would have come in handy in a lot of the competence competency based questions um in terms of actually having real life answers to give so that's kind of an easy win i think for any anyone doing applications at the moment and, and thinking about that and it doesn't, it doesn't certainly doesn't look bad on your CV and actually might might well look quite good um, and and yeah sort of this slightly more personal I mean it'd be interesting to be just sort of starting uni today because I mean sort of 10 years have gone by and it's quite a different environment and yeah I, I wonder sort of how much different I would feel as like an 18 year old starting uni today and just maybe feeling a bit more able to be open and, and be myself a bit more than I was back then um, so I'd say, you know, so far as you're able and feel comfortable, just sort of, yeah, just sort of be be yourself and and sort of have have fun because it is definitely one of the best times. <laughs> Thank you both for your words of wisdom. I think Stella and I, as well as our listeners, will take away a lot from that. And I'd just like to say thank you again for speaking to us today. I've really enjoyed having this insightful chat with the both of you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks.